Welcome to the Dasco, Reverend Randy Impact's anointed teaching ministry. This message is selected from the vast teaching archives of Reverend Randy Impact. As you listen, may you be blessed and imparted with divine wisdom. And now, today's teaching. I'm starting a series tonight on what I've entitled The Believer's Authority. And tonight, I'm going to lay the foundation to this teaching. And then we are going to go into the depth of this teaching um, as the weeks go by. But this is something that you need to hear. And this is something that will bless and transform your life. You need to hear this. Father, let the word of God uh, that proceed out of my mouth be a blessing to my hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it is very important that we understand who we are in Christ. In fact, one of the most uh, exciting topics to me in, uh, in the entire scripture is our identity in Christ. It's a very exciting topic. I mean, when I became born again, uh, one of the things I struggled with as a Christian was um, reconciling my past life with my new life. You know, um, coming into reality of my identity. The fact that uh, the word of God has a position on who I am in Christ. And the fact that I am fully aware of what I was before I, um, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and personal Savior. So there was always an issue. I could not reconcile the two. When I look at my past, I begin to look at myself in light with my past and then when i read the word of god i begin to see another opinion that's god's opinion concerning what i've become now the problem or the challenge that i was facing was that which one should i believe because uh, for me i was more in touch with my past you see i was more in touch it, it seemed more real than what the word of god was saying but as I pressed into the word of God, as I decided to have faith in God's word, as I decided to listen to what God was saying, and I decided to trust what God was saying, I began to see a new transformation in my life. And that's why this subject is very important to me. Uh, I do a lot of teaching around this, around who uh, the believer is, who the Christian is, and uh, and who has become God's opinion about the Christian. So get ready for another dimension of enlightenment that would uh, bring you to a place of uh, glory. Now, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 7. The Bible says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, this scripture is basically trying to bring our minds to the fact that um, our thought processes are very important uh, to our faith. You see that? Our thought processes, they are very important to our faith. What we think is very crucial to what we shall become. In other words, whatever we are going to become in this life is primarily premised on what we are thinking. So manifestation is a product of thoughts. Manifestation is a product of 
thought. So how you think largely translates into what you become. If you can master your thoughts, you can become anything. And so um, God deals a lot with our thought processes. Because God cannot bring anybody to any place of glory without the person accepting it. And we begin to see transformation in our lives when our mind begins to change. Everything starts from the mind. So the Bible is saying that as a man thinketh, so is he. So whatever you are going to become, you must first think. That's the first thing you must take note. Everything starts from your mindset. A wrong mindset will lead to a wrong life. A wrong mindset will lead to a wrong life. So our manifestation, the outcome of our life is directly connected to the quality of our thinking. Did you hear that? The outcome of our life is connected to the quality of our thinking. So God, knowing this, decides to engage us from the point of our mind. If we can think right, we can live right. If we can think right, we can become right. But we can never become right when we are not thinking right. Praise the Lord Jesus. So Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Uh, this is where you understand the essence of how we ought to think as Christians. Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Now, the Bible says that do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Beloved, there's a pattern in this world. What the Bible is basically saying is that there's a way that this world operates. You see that? There's a way that this world is designed to operate. This world operates by a setting thought process. But the Bible is saying you do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. But be transformed. You see, so he's connecting transformation to the way you think confirmation. If you are going to be transformed, you, you must be conformed to something. You must be thinking in a certain way. So he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So transformation is a product of thinking. Change begins with thoughts. Change begins with thought. Change begins with thought. You can never change anything until you change the mind of that thing. It says then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, the Bible is basically saying that for us to even appreciate God, know him, walk with him, be able to hold on to his promises, be able to 
identify this is God's will. This is not God's will. We must stop thinking like the way the world thinks. And we must start thinking like the way God thinks. So when we become born again, the experience is in our spirit, man. The person who is not born again has a dead spirit. You know, man is triune in nature. Man is a spirit. He has a soul and he lives in a body. But God communicates with the spirit of man. Because in John chapter 4, the Bible says that God himself, he is a spirit. So the born again experience is the regeneration of the spirit. When we say a man is born again, he is born after God. That means that a new spirit is generated in the man. But this man still has an old soul. And when we talk about your soul, we talk about your emotion, your intellect, and your will. You see, that's what we call the mind. The mind is in the dimension of your soul. But the Bible says that when your spirit is regenerated, when a new man is formed within you after the order of God, the first thing you must do is that you must renew your mind. What it means is that your mind is still thinking in an old way. And your body is still your old body. For example, if you were not, uh, if you were not born again and you had a tattoo on, you had piercings in your ears. When you become born again, the tattoo will not wipe away. Because the born again experience happens in your spirit. Your spirit is new. Your body is still old. And your soul is still old. Because your soul is the thought processes you have inherited from society, from school, from every place. So your spirit is new, but you are thinking in a wrong way. Because our thinking, we pick it from society. We pick our thinking from what we are taught in school. From uh, what society tells us. So our mind, you see, is still governed by the opinions of society. So if your mind, if, I mean, if what was put in your mind before you became born again is that you are a failure, you will have a new spirit after the order of God, in the image and likeness of God, but your mind will still tell you you are a failure. Why? That's what the mind has been programmed. Particularly if you've lived maybe 30 years, 35 years, 25 years before becoming born again. When that born again experience happens in your spirit, your mind is not born again. Remember that. Your soul is not born again. So, how do you get your mind to understand what has happened in your spirit? So that your mind will agree with your spirit and drag your body into the place God wants your body to be. This is how you do it. You are going to achieve this result by getting yourself into the word of God. The word of God is God's perfect law of liberty. The word of God is where 
we know the purposes and the will of God. So the more you study God's word, the more you remove the old way of thinking. That's the worldly way of thinking. And then you implant God's way of thinking. Now, one thing you have to understand is that God has an opinion concerning who you are in Christ. The world has an opinion concerning who you are. But to be able to live a successful Christian life, you need to know what God thinks concerning you. It's very important. Many people don't know what God thinks concerning them. So they just make do with what society thinks about them. What other people think about them. Listen to me. You should not be bothered about the opinions of people. You should be obsessed with the opinion of God concerning your life. If you are going to have a victorious Christian life, if you are going to serve God and be happy, you must only be concerned about what God thinks about you. In the book of Jeremiah, the Bible said the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, I know the thoughts I think concerning you. They are thought of good and not of evil to bring you to an expected end. The Bible said, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you and I ordained you as a prophet. Now, Jeremiah was so engrossed in the thinking pattern of his society because what society told Jeremiah every single day is that you are young, you are young, you are young, you are young. And you know, uh, particularly in Africa, when you are young, it's almost like there's something wrong with you. Because if someone wants to tell you that you can't do it, they say it with words like you are young. You know, it's like you are young is synonymous to you can't do it. You know, particularly in Ghana. You know, when adults are having conversation and you are, you are, you are sitting there, you know, one adult can shout at you and say, what are you doing here? You are young. Get out of here. You see, so the concept of being young you know, in the mind of society is wrong because they allude young to foolish, young to unwise, young to ineffective. But that's not how God thinks about young people. You see, so knowing the purpose, the mind of God concerning your life is what brings the joy of Christianity, the joy of the faith. If you become born again and you are still living by the opinions of society, you will never enjoy this walk with the Lord. And many people are in this region where they are born again, but the words that were spoken to them about from their father, from their mother, from their uncles, from their teachers is what is governing their lives. So many people think they are failures. Why? They failed in math or they failed in English or they failed in social studies. So that for them is in their soul. You see? So that for them is who they are. Remember the Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So the thought is controlling their life. Now how do you break that? You break that 
by knowing God's position concerning you. And God's position concerning you has nothing to do with your background, has nothing to do with your academic qualification, has everything to do with what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. And that is powerful. That is powerful. So we search the scripture in order to know God's mind concerning us. And the more we know this, the more we are being transformed. The Bible says, be transformed. Be changed. Become what God wants you to become. That's transformation. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The more you read from scripture that you are the head and not the tail, no matter what exam outcome is, you know that God says you are the head. And what God says is the truth. Now, someone said to me, um, uh, the Bible says God does not lie. You know, so, um, but in other part of scripture, it's like God changes mind. For example, God said to Hezekiah through Isaiah that, Hezekiah, you are going to die. And then uh, God sent Isaiah again to the home of Hezekiah and said, you will not die. And then someone says, well, God uh, actually lied right there. The first one was a lie. You see that? The first one was a lie. So God lied because Hezekiah didn't die. Now, the person doesn't understand what it means by God cannot lie. Let me help you to understand this. When we say God cannot lie, this is what it means. God in his capacity, okay, whatever he says is called the truth. You see? So, the truth starts from what God says at every point in time. So when the Bible says God cannot lie, he's saying that everything God says, the name of that thing he's saying is God, the truth. So when God said to Hezekiah, you will die, it is the truth. When God said, um, you will not die, it's still the truth. Because the Bible says God is not a man to lie. The capacity to lie is limited to men. So every statement God makes, that statement, the name of that statement is the truth. So the words of God in summary is called the truth of God. So you don't look at God from a man's perspective. Are you here with me at all? That is the revelation about the word of God. The more you imbibe the word of God, the more you become what it says. So imagine that you are born again. You are a Christian. And you have not made the effort. You see, you have not made the effort to know what God is saying about this new man in you. You cannot become what God has said concerning that new man. That's the limitation. The limitation of the Christian is not that he is not powerful. No. The limitation of the Christian is that he does not know who he is. And let me tell you the truth. The greatest weapon of the devil is not witchcraft. The greatest force of the devil against believers is not sorcery. The greatest 
weapon that the enemy uses to exploit Christians is ignorance. Because what you don't know, you cannot become. There's no way you can become. That's what the Bible says that uh, uh, my people perish for lack of knowledge. The most destructive thing in the life of the Christian is the lack of knowledge. Every kind of deception starts with ignorance. You see, and deception is the greatest weapon of the enemy. So the best thing to do as a Christian is to seek knowledge. Is to seek knowledge. Seek the truth concerning God's word and concerning who you are in Christ. Now, who are you in Christ? When you read the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5 to 6, King James Version, it gives us a picture of what we have become when we accepted Jesus as our Lord and personal Savior. We became something. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 to 6. It says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Verses 6. This is where you come in. Pay attention to this. And hath made us. Not going to make us. The moment you accept Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior. You are made. It's an instant dealing. You are made. The Bible says Christ has made us. Number one. Kings. And number two, priests. Unto God. Not unto the Ashanti kingdom. No. We are not kings and priests unto the Ashanti kingdom. Neither are we unto the Kwewu kingdom. Neither are we unto the Kwapim kingdom. Listen to me. Christ has made us kings and priests. Unto God. Hallelujah. We are kings and priests unto God. Wow. Now, next week, I'm going to take my time to teach us on the scope. The scope of our authority. When the Bible says kings and priests unto God, it's a big thing. It's a big thing. And the Bible says, and his father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, we are kings and priests unto God. Now, who are God's kings? You and I. God is a king, but he has kings. Because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of kings. What it means is that everyone in that kingdom is a king. In fact, you have to be a king to partake of that kingdom. And that's why the Bible says the elders, listen to this, the elders in that kingdom, when they want to, they, they want to worship God, they cast their crowns. Why? Even the elders are kings. You have to first be a king 
to partake of the kingdom. So it's a kingdom of kings and priests. Let me ask you a question. If you failed in physics in school and your teacher said you have failed and so by that you are a failure and God is saying you are a king does it change your position in the eyes of God remember you were not made a king on the strength of physics chemistry biology math english god didn't consider those things to make you a king god considered the sacrifice of his dear son jesus christ a sacrifice that was so great that it did not only wash away your sin it promoted you into the status of kingship so when we say that uh, the earthly opinion of you doesn't hold any water. Because if your physics teacher said that you were a failure because you failed physics, tell him that you are a king who has failed physics. It doesn't change anything. A king who fails physics is still a king. Praise the Lord Jesus. So, our position is coming from God's perspective. Say I'm a king. Say I'm a priest. This is the reality of God's truth concerning your life. And God's truth has nothing to do with feelings. You don't have to feel like a king. It is an ordination. God has made you a king. And your responsibility towards this truth is to believe in it. Say I'm a king. Say I'm a priest. Now, I remember when I was in the university and um, there were some Christians on the campus. I mean, I was called uh, Osofo. Usually they would say Osofo, you know, and so on and so forth. But I had other colleagues who were also Christians who were called Osofo. And then they would get angry. Because uh, they will say, no, I'm just a Christian. I'm not a sophomore. You know, that is <laughs> a clear display of ignorance. You see, the people are confirming who you are. You see, God did not ask us, what title do you want? God confirmed it upon us based on his wisdom and capacity. The Bible says you are a king and a priest. That's who you are. That's who you are. You don't need to preach to be a priest. You are originally a priest. That's your identity. Now, Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 to 10. Let's look at something there. I am a priest and I am a king. Hallelujah. I am a priest and I am a king. Now, when you say this consistently for a long time, you'll be transformed into a priest and a king. You see that? When you don't believe in this, you will live like a slave when you are a king. Because the world will make you feel like you are a slave when you are actually a king. What do kings do? Kings reign in their territory. 
I'm coming to that. That's why in the book of Genesis, the Bible says that have dominion over the earth. Have dominion. What does it mean? Have dominion. Have dominion. I've already explained to you, the word have is, you know, the word lambano, take it by force. So as you walk upon the face of the earth, you have dominion. The only thing you are not doing is you are not exercising that dominion you have. And I'll go into how to exercise dominion as a king. And how to exercise dominion as a priest. As we go along the teaching. Now, Revelation 5, 9 to 10. I love the word of God. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 to 10. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Verses 10. And has made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign. Say our reign. Say our reign. Say our reign. Say our reign. It says we shall reign on the earth. So we are made kings and priests unto God. That means we report to God. Our kingship authority comes from God. We are not the type of kings that are voted into power. Our kingship and priesthood is ordination from God. And the purpose of our kingship and priesthood is for us to reign here on earth. So, the Christian is someone that has been made a king so that he will be on top of this earth. To reign in every facet of life in this earth. Say, I'm reigning in life. Say, I'm reigning in life. Say, I'm reigning in life. This is the truth of God's word. A king is made to reign. Is made to rule. Is made to influence and dominate. We don't compete. We take over. So whenever a king appears in a place, the aura of the king becomes evident and obvious. Who made us king? God made us king. We are his kings in the earth. Meaning that we are reigning on his behalf. Hallelujah. We are taking charge of the earth he created. Because we are here, he is comfortable in the heavens. That's what the Bible says on the seventh day God rested. Why? He had created kings and priests who can represent him in the earth realm. Say, I'm a king and I'm made to reign. That's why in every aspect of life, you are supposed to be on top. In academia, you are supposed to be on top. In ministry, you are supposed to be on top. In finances, you are supposed to be on top. If you have this knowledge, you will never bow to the conditions of this life. Because kings don't beg. Say, I'm a king. 
My destiny is to reign. That's the truth of God's word. Now, does it mean that you not go through things in life? Everybody goes through things in life. Jesus said, so far as you are on this earth, you will go through trouble. Trouble is part of the life. But it does not change anything about your status. That's what the Bible said. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. The Christian must not be affected by the things in his environment. The Christian is to affect the things in his environment. Kings decree a thing and change the atmosphere of their environment. Kings determine the conditions of the environment. It is kings that make decrees about taxes, about things, about, um, you know, changes. Changes don't affect kings. But if you don't know this, you'll be controlled by the circumstances around you. Kings and priests to reign. Praise the Lord Jesus. I'm a king in God's kingdom. I'm a priest in God's kingdom. I'm a king in God's kingdom. I'm a priest. And the beautiful thing is that the Bible says you are a king unto God. The people of the world will never accept you as a king. I mean, if you went into the Ashanti kingdom right now and said you are a king, they would dispute that. Right? They would, they would dispute that. Because they don't see you as royal. They don't see you as royal. But who we are is not based on the perspective of man. Who we are is based on the perspective of God. Let God be true and every man a liar. I'm a king in God's kingdom. I'm a priest in God's kingdom. This is divine ordination. This is who you are. You are no more a slave. You were a slave when you were in the kingdom of darkness. But when you were redeemed, you were redeemed into kingship. Sustain this mindset. Always know that you are a king. Praise the Lord Jesus. Always know that you are a priest. This is the reality of God's truth concerning your life. And if you are a king, you cannot fail. You cannot be overcome. You cannot be dominated. What God says is what is the truth. This gives you a certain confidence to be able to do all the things that God has said you will do. Because if you understand and accept that you are a king, and God says, go into all the earth. You know that kings have territorial authority. And so you are not afraid to go. When you accept and understand that you are a king, you know that kings, they deal with wealth and prosperity. So you know you can never lack. It's not about how much is in your bank account or in your pocket. But kings don't lack. So the revelation of kingship and priesthood is a revelation you should hold on to. I'm a king and I am a priest in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Say I'm a king and I am a priest. Now, under the new covenant, when we talk about priesthood, let me start with priesthood. What do we mean when we talk about priesthood? Listen, you have to understand this because this is who you are. 
the effectiveness of your priesthood stems from the understanding of the subject of priesthood. You cannot be an effective priest if you don't know who a priest is. Alright? Now, we cannot talk about the New Testament priest without talking about the Old Testament priest because the Old Testament priest is a shadow of the New Testament priest. So when we say you are a priest, what is God saying? Pay attention to this. Now, primarily a priest is someone chosen, someone special chosen to represent the people to God and God to the people. Someone chosen to offer sacrifices and make rituals in order that God may be pleased with the people. So a priest is like a middleman between a deity and the people who worship that deity. A priest is a middleman between a deity, a god, and the people who worship that deity. That's why we call Jesus our high priest. Why? Jesus is the one that bridged the gap between us and God. So Jesus represented priesthood in his assignment. Now, let's look at priesthood from the Old Testament. Exodus 29, 36. Now, we are looking at this because the Bible says you are a priest. So now you are trying to understand who a priest is and what the responsibilities of a priest are. We did not leave priesthood in the Old Testament. Priesthood was carried into the New Testament. So who was a priest in the Old Testament? Exodus 29, 36. The Bible says, Sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering. To make atonement. Purify the altar by making atonement for it. And anoint it to consecrate it. Now, Israel means the people of God. Israel comes from the Hebrew word Israel. Israel means people. El means God. So that's where we have the word Israel. Now, when God formed Israel, there were 12 tribes that uh, represented Israel from the 12 sons of Jacob. One of the sons of Jacob was called Levi. And God made a covenant with Levi. And God said, the priest must come from Levi. So the sons of Jacob represented the tribes of Israel. And each tribe had a function. The priesthood was reserved for those who were coming from Levi. So in the old covenant or under the law, if you wanted to minister to God, and represent the people to God and God to the people, no matter how well knowledgeable you are, no matter how strong you are, no matter how handsome you are, 
you cannot become a priest unto God. Why? God defined the priesthood and limited it to Levi. So all priests were coming from the Levitical order, from the tribe of Levi. However, not every Levite was a priest, but the priests were selected from the tribe of Levi. In other words, the tribe of Levi was a privileged tribe. So, so far as you are born into that tribe, your potential of becoming a priest unto God was very high. So they offered sacrifices unto God on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. What was the essence of these sacrifices? The sacrifice, now, the sacrifice was to appease God. The reason why the priest will carry a sacrifice, go before God and offer it to God, is to appease God for the wrong that the people had done. So when the people sin, God becomes angry because God is just. Remember that. God is just. And God hates sin. It's a nature in God. So, when people sin, they must die. Or, the sin must be atoned for. What it means is that something must take away the sin so that God's wrath will be channeled towards that thing. Now, the concept of sacrifice came uh, all the way from the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says that when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened was that um, God came to the scene. And the Bible says that God made a clothing to cover their shame because they realized that they were naked. You see, the concept of sacrifice comes from that scripture. Because it is believed that for God to have made clothing from animal skin, he should have killed the animal. So, when sin happened, death happened. And the, uh, the blood that was shed from that animal is what appeased God. Now, from there, Genesis chapter 4, we, hear, uh, we, we, uh, we see Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel is introduced to us through sacrifices. Why? They are priest. So the Bible says that uh, Abel offered a sacrifice unto God. Cain offered a sacrifice unto God. But God was more pleased with the sacrifice of Abel. Then we read about Noah. The Bible says that when the flood came and then the ark landed after the flood. The Bible says that and Noah made an altar and gave a sacrifice unto God. Then we come to Abraham. Now, Abraham was a man of altars. Bible said he built altars and he made tents. I'll do a teaching on that later. He built altars and he made tents. To build means to make a, you know, to uh, to make a lot of investment in something. Uh, to make tents means that Abraham's priority was on sacrifices. And tent was temporal. He, the place he lay his head was temporal to him. But the place he offered sacrifices to God was very important to him. So, 
to make uh, to build altars you require very solid materials they use very solid uh, stones that's why throughout scripture you see landmarks you will not see any piece of tent because abraham was living a sacrificial life through his life of sacrifice so the legacy of abraham was his altars and the altars are elevated platforms to offer sacrifice so sacrifice was important to abraham so throughout scripture you come to uh, uh job you realize that bible says that every day job will offer a sacrifice unto god perhaps his children may have sinned so you realize that all the people that walk with god offered sacrifice jacob offered a sacrifice in fact the ultimate sacrifice of abraham was when he took his son Isaac under the instructions of God to offer a sacrifice unto God. So the people lived a life of sacrifice. Why? The life of sacrifice is the life of priesthood. So far as you are a priest, you are to offer sacrifices. That is the responsibility of priests. So all of them offer sacrifices. And the sacrifice, like I said earlier on, is to uh, appease God for the sin of the people. So, when you read the book of Leviticus, um, you realize that there's a way they even offer the sacrifice. For example, once a year, they will bring a lamp and then the priest will lay his hand on the lamp. And then, when the priest lay his hand on the animal, the priest will confess the sin of the people. It is believed that once he lays hands, he has laid hands on behalf of all the people. So, as he confesses the sin, he says all those who have stolen, all those who have committed adultery, all those who have converted their neighbor's wives, all those who have done this, that, that, that. What happens is that it's believed that that confession is transferring the sin of the people into the animal. Now, God's wrath and judgment is against the one who sins. Because the one who sins bears the sin. So the moment the priest transfers that sin onto the animal, the sin of the people enters the animal. And then the animal is killed. So what what it means is that the animal has paid for the sin of the people because uh, the Bible says that wages of sin is what? Death. The one who sins must die. When that sacrifice is done, you know, so when the animal is killed, the animal is placed on an altar and the fire is set into the animal. It is believed that the smoke goes to heaven and then when God smells the aroma of that dead animal, he becomes appeased with the people. So that is the responsibility of the priest to stand between God and the people and offer an exchange. To offer an exchange. The people are to die because of their sin. But the priest brings a substitute. It's called expiation. Atonement for sin. A replacement for the punishment that was meant for the people. So the animal suffers. That's why in the new covenant, Jesus came as the lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said, 
Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Because the Old Testament was a shadow. Year in and year out. Although they did that, that did not take the sin of the people away. It covered the sin. The blood of animals covers the sin. It does not take the sin away. Because the blood of animals is not perfect. You know why? Let me explain. An animal is a creature that has a body and a soul. A man is a creature that is a spirit, has a soul and a body. The composition of a man is more complex than the composition of an animal. So the blood of an animal will be insufficient to cover the sin of a man. That's why Jesus Christ did not come as an angel. He came as a man. Because who had sinned? Man had sinned. And he was coming to become the atonement for the sin of man. So he had to come in the complete nature of a man. Jesus had a spirit, a soul, and a body. So the blood of Jesus carried the ability to make and take away the sin of man once and for all. This is the truth of our salvation. So Jesus came as a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, and became the high priest of our salvation. He offered himself. He was the only priest who offered himself. The priest made an altar. What was the altar? Golgotha became the altar. An altar is an elevated ground, a platform towards God to say that God, the sins of the people have been placed on an animal. So remove your anger from the people and channel it onto the animal. Jesus was crucified on Golgotha. Golgotha is an altar, it's an elevated ground. And the day he was being crucified, the people, remember what the people said. The people said, let his blood be upon us. That's what they said. And what it meant is that, let our sin be upon him. So when he died, he took the sin of man upon himself. The only priest that offered himself. He didn't offer an animal. He became the lamb. The sacrificial lamb. And the day he died. The sin of the world was carried to him. We became blameless. That's what the Bible says. If you believe in him. You will not perish. Why? Whenever you believe in him. Your sin is transferred to him. Golgotha is repeated. And you become righteous in the eyes of God. Your sin is taken away from you. Praise the Lord Jesus. So that is the story about priesthood. Now, how does that apply in the New Testament? Remember, the New Testament, when we say New Testament, uh, it takes effect. It takes effect from the resurrection. So, when Jesus was around, he was still in the Old Testament. You see, 
when he was walking the earth, when he was healing the sick, that's still part of the Old Testament. The new covenant. You see, when we talk about covenant, we are talking about a pact. A covenant cannot be set in motion without the shedding of blood. So the day the blood of Jesus came out, that was the closure of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. Praise the Lord Jesus. That's the new covenant. Now, so when we talk about priesthood, the old covenant priest offered the sacrifice of animals. Now, the Bible says that you have become a priest and a king. And the significant mark of a priest is sacrifice. What makes a priest is a sacrifice. What makes a priest is a sacrifice. Now, when you come into people who have still not believed in Jesus, they are still practicing. That's why we have fetish priests. The significant mark of a fetish priest, they are still offering bulls, goats, cows, and all of that. As a holy gift to a deity, to appease for the sin of the people. Now, when we come into the new covenant, what sacrifice does the priest offer? You and I. What sacrifice are we expected to offer? Let me go through this quickly and then we'll go into our kingly dimension. I want to lay a, a foundation with a priestly dimension and then we go into the kingly dimension next week. But as a priest of God, what are your sacrifices? You can't offer a goat. You can't offer a chicken. You can't offer a fowl. You can't offer a bed. So what sacrifice are you expected to offer? Okay. Jesus has offered the ultimate sacrifice. So are you still supposed to offer a sacrifice? That's a question on the minds of many people. If Jesus had offered the ultimate sacrifice, which is true, and there is no need to offer any sacrifice, then you won't be a priest. Because a significant mark of a priest is sacrifice. Praise the Lord Jesus. Now, 1 Peter 2.5. Let's go to 1 Peter 2.5. And let's see what sacrifices we are to offer as priests. What sacrifices we are to offer as priests. Praise the Lord Jesus. 1 Peter 2.5. It says, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The first Peter 2 8 says you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. But this particular um, scripture is telling you the kind of sacrifices that is expected of you as a new covenant priest. Let's take it again. It says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. So now we are not offering um, the sacrifice of bulls and goats and cows. But we are offering spiritual sacrifices. 
the mark of the new covenant believer is his spiritual sacrifices. What are spiritual sacrifices? Number one. As a priest, these are the sacrifices. Remember, you are a priest unto God. You are God's priest. So it means that you are to minister to God. What do you offer God in your ministration? As a priest. Because as a priest, anytime you come to God, he expects to see your spiritual sacrifice. Number one, thanksgiving. That's in Psalm 116 verse 17. Your first spiritual sacrifice. Remember, the Bible says we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. Your first spiritual sacrifice is what? Thanksgiving. The second spiritual sacrifice is prayer. Revelations 5, 8. Prayer. Prayer is a spiritual sacrifice. You can't be a priest and you don't have a sacrifice to God. So the Christians who don't like praying, you see, they don't understand the revelation of their priesthood. A priest is marked by his sacrifice. So the Bible says that in the heaven, there's a golden bowl that collects our prayers. And the Bible says our prayers is like um, a sweet-smelling sever in the nostrils of God. Why? Our prayers is synonymous to the incense that was burnt by the priest of old. So the more you pray, the more you are offering a sacrifice of prayer unto God. And it pleases God that you pray. Number three spiritual sacrifice that you offer to God is the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15. Anytime you praise God, you are offering him a sacrifice. A priest unto God. Number four, sacrifice that you expected to offer to God is to surrender your will to him. Luke twenty two forty two. 42. Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. So, a new covenant priest is supposed to lay down his will and take up the will of the Father. And the ultimate will of the Father is in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where the Bible says that go into all the earth, preach the gospel, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. You see, that's a function of a priest. Remember, he did not say that, go, and as you are going, I'll make it sweet. No. When it comes to priesthood, it has to do with obligation. It, it has nothing to do with feeling. The priest has to go and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people, whether he feels it or not. So, we go on evangelism, soul winning. Why? We are priests and it is expected of priests. God's priests are supposed to surrender their will unto God and take up the will of God. Praise the Lord Jesus. Number five, the fifth 
sacrifice, spiritual sacrifice that we have to offer as priest is to present our body as living sacrifice. Still in Romans chapter 12. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Now, um, when we talk about presenting your body as a living sacrifice, because you are a priest, you know, the Bible says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? What does it mean? God is resident in you. And because you are a priest, your body is important to God. Presenting your body as a living sacrifice means that you don't subject your body to sinful desires. The body of the priest must not be subject to sexual immorality. That's why the Bible says that concerning the Christian, sexual immorality should not be mentioned among you. Fornication should not be mentioned among you. Why? You have been ordained as a priest. And priests don't fornicate. A priest that is fornicating has, does not have understanding of the essence of priesthood. The priest is holy. So he can't subject his life to filth. So when we are teaching on holiness, we are not trying to tell you to become something to please God. What it means is that you are already something, so don't displease God. You are too clean to become dirty. That's what it means. You have been cleansed and washed by Christ. So, a priest must hate sin, must hate fornication. To Christians that fornicate, you don't understand that you are a priest. You are the priest, a priest unto God. You can't defile this body. Now listen to me, if you are listening to me and you are in the habit of fornicating, fornicating um, you know, maybe you are even a leader. But you can't, uh, you know, you can't um, subject yourself to the righteousness that God has conferred upon you. You are a leader. You are sleeping around. You are um, doing things that married people are supposed to be doing. That's a shame. Because a priest is supposed to offer their body. What you do with your body is important to God. As a living sacrifice. And a sacrifice is dead. Dead to sin. Praise the Lord Jesus. Number 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. The sixth sacrifice, spiritual sacrifice that God expects you to offer is giving. We don't give because we've been uh, we've been compelled to. We give because it's our obligation. Priests give. You see, priests don't complain about giving. It's part of our priesthood. It's like kings reign. Kings don't complain about reigning. You never see the president of this country complaining that I'm too much president. 
I'm too much president. Reduce my presidents. I'm too much president. Anytime a priest complain about giving, they are saying, I'm too much of a priesthood. Reduce it. Remember, the priest captures the animal and offers it to God. So, the lifestyle of the priest is giving to God. Giving to God. That's what makes someone a priest. So, a priest who is not giving doesn't have the right revelation of priesthood. A priest is supposed to give. A king is supposed to reign. <laughs> Glory, hallelujah. And then finally, last but not the least, is the spiritual sacrifice of fasting. Fasting is a spiritual sacrifice. As a priest, you are to fast. Fasting is not a condition. It is an expectation. You know, Jesus said, when you fast, when you pray, when you give. Why? Because these are priestly requirements. The moment you are a priest, you must understand that fasting is part of your priesthood. Hallelujah. And we are in our 40 days of glory. Praise Jesus. And I know all of us are excited about the fast because um, a priest is supposed to fast. Praise the Lord Jesus. A priest is supposed to fast. A priest is supposed to fast. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone. The design of man is priesthood. Priests are not supposed to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's what priests do. So if you are a priest and you are struggling with fasting, there's a problem with your priesthood. Praise the Lord Jesus. I had a story about how they inaugurate people into fetishism. That's the diabolic dimension of priesthood. You see? The devil, the Bible says he's the, he's the angel of light. He comes like the angel of light. Many of us uh, have been made to believe that the devil is some ugly man somewhere. You know, many times when we, uh, when the devil is displayed in maybe drama, they will, they will put some horns uh, and then paint his face black. Even if the person is black, they will still put charcoal like black on his face. That's a wrong, that's not what the Bible says about the devil the Bible says, number one, the devil moves about like a roaring lion. So, if you want to understand the aggression of the devil, you look at the aggression of the lion. Number two, when we talk about um, the beauty of the devil, it, it's in scripture. The Bible says that he is in the form of the angel of light. He comes in the form of the angel of light. You see? So, the devil is not an ugly creature. He's a very beautiful creature. That's why he is able to deceive many. Able to deceive many. So the devil tried to create a counterfeit of every original thing. So I was told that when someone is being initiated into fetishism, which is a demonic dimension of priesthood, it's also a priesthood, but it's a demonic dimension. That's why those people also, they, they offer goats and so on and so forth. 
they are marked by sacrifices. But your sacrifice of praise is more powerful than their sacrifice of a bull. That's how you counter them. Bible says that Paul and Silas, after they have prayed, they praised. Why? They understood that a priest is supposed to pray and a priest is supposed to praise. And the Bible says, as they praised, there was an earthquake. There's a shaking. There was a shaking. As you offer your sacrifices, your spiritual sacrifices, there's a shaking and there's a room made for you. And whatever has kept you bound is broken and you are delivered in the mighty name of Jesus. So I heard that they take them uh, when the one of the final rites or rituals that is done is that the person who has been initiated into that priesthood is made to stay in the forest for three days without food. What is that? Fasting. And that when the person comes out of the bush three days without the food, the person begins to do uh Amazing and miraculous things. But I heard recently that one of them went and after one day he came out. And, and uh, so I don't know whether they will consider because he said it's too much. But they should still consider. Her. This true story. Oh, this true story. She was a lady. She said uh, she, she was dead the whole 24 hours and she came back and said it's okay. It's okay. She can't do the three days. So fasting is a significant mark of priesthood. Praise the Lord Jesus. And it brings us to the place of power. Our flesh is subdued. Our spirit is released. You know? And then every impossibility becomes possible. We begin to glow. We begin to uh, bring the kingdom of God down. We begin to move with speed that is beyond human understanding capacity these are the spiritual sacrifices that a priest is supposed to offer god bless you for listening to this message subscribe to reverend randy impact on youtube and all other digital platforms to receive more messages that will transform your life stay connected and prosper